Over the last several weeks, we've been working through the Old Testament book of Esther, and we are actually nearing the end of this series. Uh, We have this week, and then next week will be uh, the final Sunday. Uh, After Esther, uh, that'll bring us, I believe, to Palm Sunday, so we'll do some um, sermons uh, related around the topics of Palm Sunday and then Easter uh, and then at some point soon after that, we're going to begin a topical series um, about Spirit-empowered, Holy Spirit-empowered neighboring, uh, because our School of Discipleship class, Saturday seminar in June, is going to be on that topic. So the sermon series leading up to it, we're going to consider uh, that topic as well. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, or if you don't, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the Purex in front of you. We're going to be looking at the beginning of uh, the ninth chapter of Esther. So go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 9, if you would. And as you're doing that, let's just do a recap of where we've been so far in this book. It's quite a story, isn't it, for those of you who have been with us. It's a remarkable story, really. Uh, And it hits on a number of different topics. Some of those topics we're going to be coming back to uh, this morning. But one of uh, the remarkable things about the book of Esther that I've been talking about throughout this series is that it is the book in which God is hidden. And what I mean by that is that there is no mention of God in the 10 chapters of this book. It's really odd and weird, isn't it, for a book of the Bible to not mention God? Not only does it not mention God, but he doesn't make an, an appearance of any kind. It is though God is not a part of the story of Esther. And we've been kind of talking about that here and there. We're going to talk about it some again this morning as we begin to conclude this series. Um, but especially if you're joining us this morning, um, I want you to know that is a significant uh, uniqueness about this book, that it does not mention God on the pages of this story. Uh, But real quick recap, I mean, really, really quick. Um, We have a king who was a main character uh, in this story, the king of Persia. Ahasuerus is his name. I've tried to avoid saying his name as much as possible. I just refer to him as the king. It's much much easier uh, to just say that than to uh, say his name repeatedly. Uh, But he, we learn, is a power-hungry king, uh, a, a king who does what he wants. He manipulates people. And we um, encounter him doing that very early on in the book when his uh, wife, the queen, uh, Vashti, is essentially um, banished from uh, the palace courts, banished from her position as uh, queen, simply because she did not uh, come to him when he called for her in a public setting. It appeared as though he wanted to parade her beauty around at this feast, drunken feast. She refuses um, and they, the, uh, the king and his council, they can't have that, uh, because what if women throughout the empire begin uh, rebelling against their husbands in these ways? We must take a stand. We must act. And so they remove Vashti um, from being queen, and we do not hear from her. We don't hear her name, essentially, again, the rest of the storyline. But what happens after time is that it seems like the, the king's uh, council around him recognize that the king needs companionship. He's lonely. And so they uh, formulate this idea that they would basically have uh, a beauty contest, if you will. 
And so they, it's, not, it's not that they recruited, they went and kidnapped, abducted women throughout the Persian Empire who were deemed beautiful uh, to basically be in a contest to win uh, the position of queen in the Persian Empire. And the way it worked was the, ones that would, the one who was deemed most beautiful would get a night with the king, um, and if the king was satisfied by this woman, then she would become queen. And we, um, in our story, what happens is a woman named Esther, a Jew, the king doesn't know she's a Jew at the time, wins this horrible beauty contest, so to speak. And then the storyline really begins to pick up. Uh, big picture, what happens is that the king's right-hand man, Haman, uh, develops a hatred for Mordecai, Esther's relative. Uh, he despises Mordecai because Mordecai, unlike everyone else, all the other citizens of the empire, they ref- he refuses to bow down ever to Haman. And Haman just can't take it. And so Haman's family members help him devise a plan to have Mordecai hanged. But along before that, there's also a edict that is written. The king doesn't know what people he's writing the edict against, but Haman kind of deceives to some degree the king in writing an edict that would have all of the Jews in 11 months uh, annihilated and destroyed throughout the Persian empire. Well, Mordecai eventually goes to Esther, since she is in this role of queen, and says, you must act. You are the only one that can potentially protect our people and save us. And so after a series of events, we see Esther and an awakening happening within her. Because up to this point, uh, Esther has led a very passive life. A lot of horrible things have been done to her. But now we begin to see Esther take responsibility for her life and begin to act and be a significant player in God's story. And so uh, long story short, she ends up um, bringing this plot that was devised by Haman to the king's attention Haman ends up being hanged, not Mordecai. It's quite a reversal, as we talked about last week. And then we left off um, talking about how they still had this predicament, right? Because this edict was still out there, that in the months to come, uh, the Jews would be annihilated. So the king, um, apparently we learned the Persian Empire, can't undo his own edict, but rather what he says to Mordecai and Esther is that you can write uh, a counter-edict, And so Mordecai, um, with Esther's blessing, writes an edict that says that all of the Jews have permission to defend themselves and to kill anyone who would seek to uh, come and bring them harm and try to kill them. And so we pick up with chapter 9 this morning. Uh, This is a weighty chapter in a lot of ways. Maybe you thought, wow, I thought everything so far was weighty. Well, it doesn't get less weighty and probably gets a little more weighty with this chapter. So let me go ahead and read it for us, and then we will jump in. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful." 
The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And then it goes to list uh, Haman's uh, 10 sons, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made that day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Let's uh, take some time now to pray. Holy Spirit, what do we do with this chapter of Scripture? There's so much killing. We can't overlook that. Uh, It's hard to make sense of. And so we just pray for your leading and your direction. Uh, Give us a sense of how a chapter such as this might fit into your grand story of redemption. And always we pray that you would come find us through your word, whether we find ourselves in this moment believing, disbelieving, unsure of what we believe. Come find us and apply your word, the good news of redemption to our lives in the way that we need to have it applied in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, the tables have turned? Sure that you have. Uh, I don't know if it's a phrase that you yourself have ever used or you throw around often. Um, But this phrase, the tables have turned, is relevant uh, to the chapter of Esther that we come to this morning. And really, it's relevant to uh, the book of Esther as a whole. Last Sunday, uh, our our topic, the sermon title, was the grand reversal or something like that. So we've already gotten into this concept, this theme, this topic of reversal and the tables having turned. But if you look up this phrase, the tables have turned, turn the tables in a dictionary, you'll find something like this, that it's uh, generally understood as that if you have reversed the fortunes in your favor to some capacity, so as to reverse one's position relative to someone else, especially by turning a position of disadvantage into one of advantage. And so it's a reversal of some kind, right? It's particularly for one who was uh, in the moment, uh, at a disadvantage, and suddenly find, they find themselves at an advantage. And that's exactly what we have here. And I want you to look particularly at 
the very first, the second verse, or first verse toward the end um, of chapter 9. It says that on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. In other words, the tables turned. What a statement, right? Particularly if you have been trekking with us throughout this the storyline of this book, this is a remarkable development because the Jews were on the brink of annihilation. And we, we talked about this over the weeks, but try as best as you can to enter into the story, to feel the emotion of it, and to imagine you yourself a Jew at that time in the Persian Empire. And this edict is declared, and it's publicized all throughout the empire that in 11 months, You, as an individual, but along with the whole of your people, are going to be annihilated, are going to be destroyed. You imagine the fear, the vulnerability. I mean, what do you you even do with that? How how do you react? How do you go on living in, in the coming weeks? What do you do with that? And now we come to chapter nine, and the reverse of that happens. So imagine what the reversal of emotion for the Jews, to go from feeling like their very identity, their heritage, their, their people was on the brink of annihilation to now gaining mastery, as the text says, over those who would seek to do them harm. This is the climax of the story. Everything has been working up to this development. We don't know, as we've said uh, multiple times, who the author of the book of Esther was, But the author of Esther is um, brilliant, brilliant in so many different ways. One of the ways in which the author of Esther is brilliant is by not mentioning God. You might say, yeah, that doesn't seem so brilliant to me for a book of the Bible. Uh, It seems like it's working against what the Bible should be about. We've talked about that. We're going to come back to that. But it's actually, from my perspective and many scholars and commentators on this book, It's actually literary genius that the author of Esther um, has not mentioned God in this story. But we come to the the, uh, climax of this reversal that takes place. And in light of this reversal, kind of now stepping back, looking big picture at the book of Esther, I want to come back to two primary themes um, that I, I think are relevant for us as we begin to wrap up Esther. And the two points, the two statements that I want to make this morning are these, that our choices matter and the cross matters. Our choices matter and the cross matters. Now, as we begin exploring this question of do our choices matter, um, the question is really this, I think. Is God in control or are people in control? I think we could frame the question that way. Is God in control or are people in control? And I want you to just silently reflect on that for a few moments and to think about it, particularly in light of the book of Esther. As you've maybe been with us and read through this book, I want you to consider that question. Is God in control or are people in control? And remember, God is not mentioned in the story of Esther. So we know what the answer should be, right? If we take the Bible seriously, if we're people of faith, then obviously we, we, God has to be in control, right? That has to be the case. But still, I want to explore that question at a little bit deeper level because the reality in the book of Esther and in our own lives is this, that God so often seems 
so hidden, doesn't he? God so often seems so hidden. It's rare, maybe it's never happened to you, in which you feel like God directly, audibly spoke to you, right? Or in which he physically appeared before you. So much of the life of faith is a life lived without 100% demonstration that God is actually at work in our lives in a way that's visible, in a way that's tangible. God seems so hidden. And this is actually the brilliance and the literary genius of the book of Esther. This is real life. This is what the life of faith feels like on a daily basis, doesn't it? We, we wrestle with these very practical and personal questions. Is God in control or am I in control? Are the people around me in control? How does this all intersect? How does this flesh out? How does it work? The book of Esther is actually a story about ordinary people like you and me. You know, and one of the funny things that has kind of... That has been a reality for me in the book of Esther are some of these difficult names that we come to uh, that I have to read. That's why, with the 10 sons of Haman, I decided, all right, I'm just going to say, list the 10 sons of Haman instead of trying to uh, not uh, butcher their names. And this has been the case throughout the book of Esther. There have been some awkward moments trying to read these names, but we can overlook the fact that these were real people with real names. Their names weren't foreign to us. Uh, or they weren't foreign to the people around them in their day. They're foreign to us because of the cultural and time distance. But these were real people with real stories, ordinary people going about their ordinary lives in the same way that you and I might, wrestling with the big questions of life in the same way that you and I wrestle with the big questions of life. Esther is a story about ordinary people like you and me. And it's a story about God's hand in human choices. Right? Again, God's voice is not audibly heard. He doesn't make a physical appearance. This is a book for us. And so while throughout the history of the church, many scholars, theologians, commentaries have um, felt awkward by the book of Esther, like what do we do with it? Um, you know, it's, I, I've never in my whole life growing up in the church heard a sermon series on the book of Esther. Uh, it's not a book that we are necessarily really familiar with, and I think it's because it has this element of awkwardness for us. What do we do with it? Where is God? But it is, for those reasons, actually a book for us. God wants to use us in life. He wants to use us for his purposes in the world. And we, we've, we've seen this throughout the series, right? Um, we when we first encounter Esther, she is an incredibly passive woman in the sense that we first learn about all these things that have been done against her, that have been done to her, that have been done toward her. She is the, the victim of other people's uh, decisions and choices and abuses and so on and so forth. And we, as we were really exploring that weeks ago, like we raised the question in our own lives when we um, encounter injustices of different kinds, when we wrestle in our own lives with ways in which we've been harmed and wounded by other people. And it always provokes the question, where is God? God seems most hidden in our suffering and sorrows, doesn't he? He does. He seems most hidden in our suffering and our sorrows. But then we see this transition happen in the life of Esther, we use the, the kinds of words like awakening. This, some kind of awakening seems to happen inside of her as she is faced with a decision. And 
As we looked at it, the decision basically came down to this. Will she choose her cultural identity first and foremost, or will she choose her spiritual identity? If she were to choose her cultural identity, what would that look like? It would ultimately look like her standing idly by while her people were destroyed, and then most likely in the end, she herself would be destroyed because she's a Jew. It would be a lack of courage, right? It would be ultimately a lack of love. But we see this awakening happening in Esther. Um, She begins to realize what love requires. And so she chooses her spiritual identity and she uh, makes herself vulnerable and goes boldly into the presence of the king, uh, not knowing whether the king would kill her or not because of this bold uh, request she was going to end up making. But she does it because she realizes what love required. Now, it's always the case when we watch a movie or a TV show, we read a book or a story, everything seems more heightened, right? Because we're doing it in a short period of time, and the people that we are watching or reading about, they just seem like they're far more important people than we are in life. And sure, like in this book particularly, it all takes place in a royal context, a royal court. We're talking about kings and queens. But at the end of the day, the stuff that they are encountering on a daily basis, while magnified because of their roles, they're faced with the same kind of decisions, the same kind of choices that we are faced with. What does love require in any given situation? Do we fail to show courage and choose ultimately ourselves over the good of others? What does that look like? And all of these uh, daily decisions that we encounter. And here's what we need to be aware of. This happens usually, I mean, there are times in our lives where we're just really tuned in and we have a heightened awareness to the decisions maybe that are on our plate. But the reality is, is that for so much of ordinary life, I mean, just think about the amount of decisions and choices that you make in a 24-hour period. Some of them bigger than others, but every day we are making countless decisions and choices. And life is so busy, we talked about some of this, life is so busy, there's so many things coming at us that we don't take time to slow down, to reflect, and to actually uh, evaluate our own minds and our own hearts. And so as we look at this chapter, um, what we're doing this morning is really using the ninth chapter to help us kind of do this macro reflection on the book of Esther as a whole, and then we'll hit on some of the specific things that are happening in light of this book, but it's this idea of reversal, this idea of the tables being turned that really highlights for us the ordinary decision-making, the ordinary choices that we make throughout life. And sometimes the choices we make are faithless choices, right? We make choices that aren't rooted or motivated by faith. But then there are choices that we sometimes make that are rooted in and motivated by faith. So we make both faithful decisions and faithless decisions in life. And here's the beauty of it. We see both of those things happening in the book of Esther. Like if we were to um, create like a, a chart and say, all right, let's just go through and list all of the, uh, the choices that you've seen characters in this book make that you would say are faithful. Okay, now let's do it under the category of faithless we would have a a, a decent-length list for each of those. Again, this is ordinary life, 
This is regular life for us. You look back on the last 24 hours or however long, the choices that you made, some of those choices were probably faithful. Some of those choices were probably faithless. Here's the point of Esther. God's guiding hand, while hidden, is mysteriously present to bring all of that together in a way that tells a good story. So back to the question. Is God in control or are we in control? You want to know the biblical answer? Yes. Both. Both. Take Haman, for example. It's easy to pick on Haman because he's easy um, to not like. Haman is a jerk. Haman is filled with pride. Haman hates other people because they refuse to make a big deal of him. They, they refuse to feed his pride. I'm thinking particularly of Mordecai. Does Haman's downfall happen as a result of God deciding at some point saying, you know what, I don't like Haman. I'm going to bring about his downfall and ultimately have him destroyed. Well, in a certain sense, yes, God's guiding hand is at work. He's working out his purposes. But at the end of the day, Haman is responsible. Haman is absolutely responsible for his actions. Haman couldn't say, um, well, it wasn't my fault. God made me like this. He made me do this. He, you know, he made me choose these decisions. He made me struggle with pride. Haman is responsible for his own heart and his own actions. Haman, in a, in a real sense, is the one who brought about his own downfall. Both simultaneously are true. Both were simultaneously working together. The, um, what the Bible presents us with is the truth that God is sovereign, meaning that he is absolutely in control, but also that human beings are responsible. Now, how you want me to tie that all up in a nice and tidy way? Not happening. Can't do that. Wish that I could. You can't do that. I can't do that. But guess what? This is real life. This is what we navigate. And this is what the characters of the book of Esther navigated as well. Fortunately, God loves the ordinary. We disdain the ordinary so often. We're always looking for the extraordinary. We're always looking for something that's flashy and grand. And when we think about life, we're thinking about like the big life decisions. We don't tend to think about the smaller decisions that form our character and create virtue or vice in our lives in light of those small decisions. But we could say it this way. All of the small decisions in life impact our ability to make the big decisions in life. Because if we are regularly making decisions or choices that are faithless, in which we are not doing what love requires on behalf of others, that forms and shapes us as a particular kind of person. And so when it comes to the big choices and decisions of life, there's going to be a problem there, a dilemma for us, and we see that play out in the life of somebody like Haman. There's no divorce between the more ordinary decisions he makes and the more extraordinary decisions that he makes because he is being formed all along by his choices and decisions into a particular kind of person. And in Haman's case, he does not act out of what love requires. He acts out of what self requires. And therefore, he increasingly becomes a man not of virtue, but as a man of vice. God loves the ordinary. He works in the ordinary. And he desires for us to live in increasing awareness of his presence in the ordinary 
so that we might make decisions that are rooted increasingly in faith and not faithlessness, so that he might form us into deeper Christ-likeness, wiser, more virtue, more beauty, moral beauty in, in our lives. He wants our lives to increasingly overflow with moral beauty that blesses and honors our neighbor. So while God, yes, does work to bring Haman down to a certain extent, Haman also has worked just fine on himself, to, by himself, to bring himself down. Now, let's come to, really, I think, what is the meat, meaty question of this chapter in particular. There's a lot of killing here, isn't there? A lot of killing. And it's frustrating. And here's one of the things that, I, one of the characteristics of Esther that I want to come back to. And we, we've talked, we talked about this from the very beginning. Not only is God not mentioned in the book of Esther, but the author of Esther never really offers us commentary on how to interpret decisions that characters make. It just, the story is just told. And we don't have the advantage of knowing that, okay, here's what the Bible is saying about this person's decision. Good decision, bad decision over here. We don't have any of that. There's no commentary, moral commentary really provided. The story is just told. And we would say that in the storyline, people do some great things and also people do some horrible things, but we really don't get commentary on it. And that is especially relevant in this chapter. Esther requires, I mean, there's already a whole lot of killing that has been allowed. Um, but now Esther, the king comes to her and says, what else essentially could I do for you? Do you have any other requests? And her request is ultimately a second day of killing. Now let's clarify. Um, in the storyline of Esther, the killing that the Jews are doing is, is out of self-defense. Because remember the initial edict by, uh, that was signed off by the king, that Jews throughout the empire of Persia would be annihilated. People were given permission to go and destroy the Jews on a certain day. And the counter edict that ends up being written is one that says, you may defend yourself and kill anyone who tries to come and harm you and kill you. And so that's what the Jews do. But then Esther makes this second day of request. Now, it seems to be the case that, um, that there was going to be a second day of people coming at the Jews, or at least in certain areas, probably why Esther has made this request. But still, she makes the request and also, she says, I want you to hang the sons of Haman. Interpreting the Bible is sometimes easy, but oftentimes not easy. And when we come to chapters like this, uh, it's not easy because there's a lot going on here that we have to separate out and uh, just consider. One of those is there's a huge gap, right, between where we are today in world history, in our culture, and that of the context uh, and setting of this book. You know, ancient times, warfare that we can't understand, doesn't make sense to us. Um, certain laws, like for example, the edict thing, you know, we might say, well, why didn't the, the king just undo the first edict? Well, apparently it was a law that the king couldn't do that. That's just an example of historically, like we, it's helpful to understand so that we can um, enter into the storyline better. 
But also, one thing that we need to, to realize here, for example, with the killing of Haman's sons, is that that actually was part of how warfare worked in the ancient culture. If there was somebody who represented a threat to uh, the king or to whomever it might be, that person would, like in Haman's case, be killed, but his family would also be killed, particularly his sons, in case they may start to think, we need to seek revenge for what they did to our dad. Um, Again, we get no commentary on it from the author of Esther. We're, We're just told what is happening, and that detail in particular, we might not be able to make sense of it without that helpful context of history and warfare in ancient culture. So again, a lot going on here. We have to separate the cultural gap. We have to separate out how ancient warfare worked. And we're not even making um, claims at this point about what is right or wrong. We're just making these observations. But they're all really important observations that we need to make. So Esther says, tomorrow also, you see that in the text, tomorrow also, she requests the second day of killing. Again, it's probably because there are still armed people in Susa committed to carrying out the first edict. All of this is really, I think, barbaric by modern standards. I mean, warfare still takes place, and it's ugly, and we might say barbaric, but there are certain things about ancient warfare that we deem especially barbaric, and it's hard for us with our modern sensibilities to know what to do with it. We do learn this detail. Three times in this chapter, the author says that the Jews did not lay hand on the plunder. So it does seem to be the case that the Jews were doing simply what they were given permission to do, and that is to defend themselves. After killing people, they did not go and plunder their possessions. Um, So that is another observation for us to make. And there's a lot more to be said about that, but we don't have the time this morning. But when it comes to Esther in particular, what do we make of this, right? How do we how do we view Esther's character in light of... It, it seems like she's become bloodthirsty, right? It, it, it appears as though it's like, oh no, she's gotten some power now and she's going to turn into somebody just like the king. I know it's frustrating, but we don't get the commentary. We're not told what we should think of these requests that Esther is making. We're, we're not given any information about whether we should view them as... Uh, moral decisions or immoral decisions on Esther. And again, it's hard because we don't know all of the background and context of what's happening. But let me say this, and it comes back to ordinary life and the choices that we make. This is why it is so critical for us to practice regular self-reflection. Because there are, you know, there may be gray areas in life where we're not sure what the right choice is. But without self-reflection, guess what is going to happen more times than not? You're going to make choices and decisions rooted in selfishness. You're going to make decisions and choices that are not informed by what love requires. Left to ourselves, without any reflection and the Holy Spirit and discernment and the Holy Spirit working in us, more often than not, we are going to bring harm to other people. We are going to make decisions with our best interest in mind. The only way to counteract that is to live with an increasing awareness of God's presence, knowing this weakness about the human heart, your own condition, and asking for 
the Holy Spirit to regularly be guiding you and giving you discernment, helping you to know in your regular decision-making whether you are acting out of the bentness of your heart or a heart that's actually being made whole by Jesus. One thing that we can say coming out of the book of Esther as a whole and the Bible as a whole is this. Now we're, we're kind of transitioning to, to close. Human evil necessitates divine judgment. Human evil necessitates divine judgment. Now, I get that this might be hard to process. It might be hard to hear. It might be hard for us to reflect on. And this is where we need the fullness of the biblical story. We can't just take any narrative of Scripture out of context and try to develop a full orb theology from it. We need the whole scope of Scripture to help us here. But it is true, it is the case that human evil necessitates divine judgment. And even though for our modern sensibilities, myself included, I, I kind of just want to say, no, no, we don't want to go there. We don't want to say that. This is actually incredibly good news. I know it's weird, but it's incredibly good news that human evil necessitates divine judgment and God is willing to judge. We don't like to think of God as judge. We tend to say maybe that God is love, but those two things aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, here's the point. Because God is a God of love, he is willing to judge. Because God is a God of love, he's willing to to judge. God tasked us as human beings to be caretakers of his creation, to promote shalom, flourishing, human flourishing in all areas of life. And in order to do that well, we are, we're called by God to live life centered on him, to derive our identity, our meaning, our purpose from him, who he is and what he provides for us. And yet human beings have rebelled against that. And along with that, they now make a mess, ourselves included, of God's good creation. We, as we've seen multiple times throughout this series, we use the people, places, and things around us for our own interests, to manipulate others. Ultimately, what we're doing is we are destroying the goodness of God's creation. We are working against shalom, God's desire for harmony and flourishing to be what characterizes his world. And what if God just simply didn't care? This is really kind of the question that we're going to end with. What if God didn't care? What if God didn't care about any of that? He just kind of said, whatever, do what you want. Do what you want to others. Um, there are no consequences. That would be so unbelievably unloving. Who would want to worship a God of such indifference? God loves at the core of who we are, he, at the core of who he is. He loves what is good. He loves what is right. He loves what is perfect. And part of being a whole human being is to share in God's love for those same things. But because our hearts are bent and broken by sin, we work against his good purposes. But God is willing to judge because he loves. He's not indifferent. Miroslav Vuf is a Croatian theologian, and anytime I, almost anytime probably, I talk about judgment, divine judgment in a sermon, I quote Miroslav Vuf. He says this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. 
He says, I'm less interested in arguing that God's violence is not unworthy of God than in showing that it is beneficial to us. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves. They deem the talk of God's judgment irrelevant, irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. And then finally, he brings it to a head by saying this, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. It will be unpopular with many Christians, especially in the West. And I think that's a critique that those of us who live in the West need to hear. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture like he has in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlines this chapter was originally delivered. Among your, among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence, the thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis, that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Wow, what a critique. What a critique, particularly of us as Westerners and our ideologies and our thinking. But here's what we can say, I, I think, along with Miroslav Wolf. It is actually, although hard to comprehend, hard to understand, it is actually a good thing, and it is an act of love that God cares to the point of being willing to judge evil. And for us as followers of Jesus, that brings us to the cross. Remember, our, order, our, our choices matter and the cross matters. The cross matters for our choices because, remember, we make both faithful and faithless choices. And by God's grace, because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us and our faith in that, in the context of God's story, even our faithless decisions get covered by the blood of Jesus. That's good news, right? That actually empowers us to continue to, to want to be faithful actors and agents in God's story, knowing that, yes, because our hearts are bent, there are going to be times where we're faithless. There are going to be times where we hurt others, yet we can still move forward knowing that God covers our mistakes, our sins, our faithless decisions by the blood of Jesus. But also, because God has judged evil, because God has judged sin in Jesus on the cross, dealing with it, we don't have to take matters into our own hands. And so that's what we can say about the progressive nature of the biblical story. It's hard to make sense you know, in the Old Testament with some of these narratives, but what we do know in the Old Testament is that God was preserving a people for the, the Messiah Jesus to come from. He was preserving that people. And in the New Testament, that Savior comes. And he on the cross deals with sin. He deals with uh, all of the evil and wickedness and injustices in the world. He absorbs it in himself. It's dealt with. And we can entrust judgment, therefore, into God's hands. Now, practically speaking, this has significant ramifications for us. It has ramifications for how we view maybe various people groups in the world. You know, Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. Jesus teaches us to lay down our lives for others. And so we as individuals in the church, we don't need to seek 
vengeance. We don't need to seek retaliation because Jesus changes us, and we know we can trust that Jesus on the cross has dealt with all sin. But it also means that in our own personal lives, there's a source, a fountain of incredible forgiveness that we can tap into as we understand what Jesus did on the cross, not just in general for people who would put their faith in him, but for us as individuals. For all of the people who have hurt us, who have wounded us, who have committed injustices against them, it doesn't mean that we need to fully reconcile to them in a sense of being in tight relationship because that would potentially be a really bad idea. But it does mean that there is a fountain, a source of forgiveness that we can tap into to be able to forgive even when we don't want to, even when it seems hard, even at times when people are undeserving because we recognize the deep forgiveness that God has offered us. Even in the face of our rebellion and our graffiti of his good creation, there's still forgiveness and life for us. And therefore, we can be people who embody that forgiveness in, in life to our neighbors and to the world around us. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to finish the series. Um, it won't be weighty as weighty. Uh, we're going to talk about um, celebration and festivity because that's how the book ends. We see God's people uh, rejoicing, and we're going to just talk about how the themes of celebration and feasting are central themes in the economy of God's kingdom. Let me uh, pray for us. Father, what a hard uh, chapter of Scripture. Um, but you desire hard things for us, and we know practically in our own lives that we typically grow the most through hard things. So we trust that through this hard uh, chapter of Scripture that you have worked and that you will work, uh, we pray that you would um, give us a deeper desire to live in awareness of your presence, to be formed by you so that we might be people who represent you well, who make wise increasingly wise decisions in life that benefit others. And we pray that you would remind us always of the centrality of the cross, how it changes everything for us and how it can change everything for our world. May we be people who represent the cross and communicate it well for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.